This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This is the Tudor's Dynasty Podcast. And now, Rebecca Larson. Hello, and welcome to the Tudor's Dynasty Podcast. I'm your host, Rebecca Larson. Welcome to the show. With this podcast, I share a variety of stories from the most well-known dynasty of them all, the Tudors. From simple stories about the people of the time to the drama that was the reign of Henry VIII. And of course, politics. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by... The Falcon Nest, handmade history-themed jewelry. The Falcon Nest specializes in gorgeous replicas of the famous Anne Boleyn bead necklace. You can see more at the-falcon-nest.com. And be sure to use the promo code TUDORSDYNASTY to receive 15% off. Anne Boleyn, daughter, sister, lady-in-waiting, Marquess, queen, mother, heretic, witch, traitor, victim probably one of the most recognizable names in English history. Her life story has been immortalized in numerous books, films, and television series in the 483 years since her untimely death. The world still feels the ripples of the waves Anne Boleyn made during her lifetime, including the highly successful reign of her only child, Queen Elizabeth I. Now, Anne Boleyn has long been one of my favorites, as well as many others, but I'll be the first to admit that I am not an expert on her life. That is the reason why I started having guests on the show. So today's guest is Sari Graham. This isn't the first time um, that you have heard Sari on here, and it won't be the last. Sari went from being one of my followers to becoming one of my best friends. So thank God for our tutor community. Not only do I think Sari is an amazing person, but she has been a lifelong fan of Anne Boleyn. At the age of 13, she was introduced to Henry VIII and his six wives. Welcome to the show, Sari. Hi, Rebecca. Thanks for having me back. I always love to talk to you about history anyway, so this is a perfect opportunity to be able to talk about a subject that you know a little bit more about than I do. So let's start off with what was it exactly about Henry and his wives that intrigued you so much at 13? Well, I was a little younger than 13 when I really first was introduced to the world of the Tudors, but it was around 13 that I became particularly enamored with Anne Boleyn. Um, I think as with most people, it all started with a book for me. It was called Elizabeth I, Red Rose in the House of Tudor by Catherine Lasky. It was part of this Royal Diaries series for younger readers, and I ended up owning actually most of the series the books in the series. Um, It also included books about Mary Stuart, Eleanor of Aquitaine, Isabella of Castile, Marie Antoinette, Victoria of Kent, and uh, Christina of Sweden, among many, many others. And in the backs of each book were, you know, real pictures of portraits and little tidbits of information about the people that you were reading about. And I remember being absolutely bewildered that this king of England had six wives. And granted, in my naive youth, I understood that as six wives at the same time and not spared, spaced out 
over a number of years. Um, but I think that if Henry wasn't such a theologian himself, he probably would have been down for having six wives all at the same time. <laughs> You're probably right. <laughs> yeah. So when I was in, I think, grade five, grade six, my French teacher saw me reading this book about Elizabeth, and he actually taught me the moniker divorced, beheaded, died, divorced, beheaded, survived. And I very quickly zeroed in on the beheaded part. Um, reading about a queen, or two queens rather, but in particular Anne Boleyn, reading about a queen that had been executed shocked me. And it created a flurry of questions that I needed answers to. And this was a time where the internet was fairly new to me because I was much younger. And so researching online was much different at that time. So I settled for the next best thing. Any book that I could find about the Tudors, I leapt on. So then fast forward to 2007, uh, Showtime's The Tudors series had premiered and I was just in heaven. Natalie Dormer really made Anne Boleyn real for me. And as we progressed through the season two and, and the finale of season two, the basic understanding that I had of Anne Boleyn at the time, I remember thinking, okay, but she didn't actually do anything, but she was executed anyway. Why? And it was then that I really began to look hard at Anne Boleyn and her life and the accusations against her and how everything went down. And when it dawned on me that she was an innocent woman who was condemned to die, I was just totally rocked. You know, when it comes to Anne Boleyn, there are like there's so many debates that go with her story. Um, probably you, you could start at the beginning with her age. Um, can you maybe shed a little bit of light on maybe when, when she was born or that whole debate? Sure. Yeah. Um, I think most people agree that Anne Boleyn was born around either 1501 or 1507 at the family home at Blickling Hall in Norfolk. Um, unfortunately, we don't have any records that actually state her exact date of birth, but many sources, and myself included, tend to lean more towards 1501 based on other events in her childhood, as well as the fact that her family didn't move to Hever Castle, which is the childhood home that's strongly associated with Anne and her family, until 1507. I think a lot of people don't realize that she was born at Blickling and not at Hever. Yeah, that was something that happened after she was born. And I just feel like, you know, that that's a strong piece of information that kind of leads that she was not born in 1507. It had to have been before that. Okay. Okay. Well, so now, Sari, are the listeners of the show really range in knowledge of the Tudors and Anne as well? Could you maybe tell us a bit more about her life before she became the famous second wife of Henry VIII? Yeah, for sure. Um, so Anne was the second daughter and the third of five children of Thomas Boleyn and his wife, Elizabeth Howard Boleyn. And of these five children, only three of them survived to adulthood. Anne, her elder sister Mary, and their younger brother George. And at the time of Anne's birth, the Boleyn family was already well respected within the aristocracy, and her father was actually a favorite at the court of King Henry VII, and he was a well-respected diplomat for the king. Now, Anne's lineage is rather impressive as well, wouldn't you say? Yeah, um, I, would, I would say that it is, and I think one of the arguments... At the time, you know, when she was rising, 
um, was that, you know, she wasn't noble enough and she wasn't um, high enough to be to be placed in the position that she ultimately ended up at. But that can be argued a little bit. I mean, among her ancestors, there was a Lord Mayor of London, a Duke, an Earl, some aristocratic ladies and a knight. But I think the most interesting thing is that Anne was actually a seven times great granddaughter of King Edward I through her father's family. Now, a lot of times we really focus on Anne's mother's side. You know, her mother was a Howard, and that's really what we usually attribute her lineage to. Yeah, so through her mother, Anne was a niece of the formidable Thomas Howard, third Duke of Norfolk. And I think a lot of people tend to focus on that piece of her heritage because it was much closer to her in relation like in her own lifetime rather than her ancestry from King Edward goes back 262 years. So her Howard lineage is, it was more current at the time. And uh, the author, Eric Ives actually asserts that Anne was probably of more noble birth than her English queenly successors, Jane Seymour, Catherine Howard and Catherine Parr. And with, you know, that kind of pedigree on both sides of her family, it's easy to see why. So while other less fortunate children of a similar age were working the English fields, Lady Jane Grey and Anne Boleyn were actually spending time in the company of royalty. So, of course, when you're talking about Lady Jane Grey and royalty, kind of talking about the Dowager Queen, Catherine Parr, not to mention the fact that her mother was niece of Henry VIII. Now, okay, maybe Jane isn't the best example to use for this, but Anne Boleyn was fortunate enough to be placed in an amazing household on the continent, wasn't she? Yeah, so thanks to her father's, you know, charm and his success as a diplomat, in 1513, Anne was invited to join the household of Margaret of Austria, who was the regent of the Netherlands, at her home at Mechlin in the Duchy of Brabant, which is now in modern-day Belgium. And typically, girls had to be at least 12 years old to receive such an honor, but Apparently, Margaret was so impressed by Anne that she decided to make an exception. And this is another one of the details that leads me to believe that her birth year was closer to 1501, because I find it to be far more plausible that an exception would be made for a girl approaching her 12th birthday within a couple of months, because the idea of a six-year-old being sent to a court abroad doesn't really fit with the custom at the time. And Anne had received an education that was considered fairly standard for women of her class. She learned things like arithmetic and grammar, her family genealogy, history, reading, spelling, and writing. And while she was at the court of Margaret of Austria, her skills grew to include things like dancing, embroidery, manners, household management, music, singing, and she also learned activities and games such as cards, chess, dice, and more physical activities such as archery, falconry, horseback riding, and hunting. Anne had made such an impression on Margaret that when Margaret wrote to Sir Thomas that his daughter was, and I quote, so presentable and so pleasant, considering her youthful age, that I am more beholden to you for sending her to me than you to me. And those are pretty strong words praising a 12-year-old child from, from royalty. Um, so I can imagine that Thomas's heart must have swelled with pride to hear such words of praise for his young daughter. What a, what an honor for Anne to be able to be in such an amazing, I almost want to say progressive household at such a young age. 
Yeah, absolutely. And considering that she was the younger daughter and that, you know, this did not include Mary at the time, I think that speaks volumes to the character and the intelligence that Anne had even at a young age. So how long did Anne spend at Margaret's court? Anne was at Margaret's court for about a year before her father had arranged to have her attend King Henry VIII's younger sister, Princess Mary, who was to travel to France to marry the aged King Louis XII in October of 1514. Anne was a maid of honor to Queen Mary. And after the death of King Louis, a mere three months after their marriage, the Dowager Queen returned to England but Anne stayed on in France for another seven years as a maid of honor to the next French queen, Claude, the wife of the new king, Francis I. While she was attending the French queen, Anne became fully fluent in the French language, and she developed an interest in art and fashion and literature and poetry and religious philosophy, as well as gaining experience in the game of courtly love and flirtation. It's likely during this time that Anne made the acquaintance of King Francis's sister, Marguerite of Navarre, who was herself a patron of humanists and reformers, and whose own writing sort of teetered on the edge of heresy. Uh, Being the sister of the King of France is probably the only protection that Marguerite had from any sort of heretical persecution. And it's supposed that Marguerite's influence is what really encouraged Anne's interest in reform. And her experiences in France made her the devout Christian that she was, but within this new tradition of Renaissance humanism. And Anne didn't stay in France forever, obviously. When did she return to England again? Anne was recalled to England late in 1521, and this was for a proposed marriage to her Irish cousin, James Butler, who was a few years older than her and at the time was a page in the household of Cardinal Wolsey. Uh, This marriage plan was made to hopefully settle a dispute over the title and the estate of the Earldom of Ormond. Anne's paternal grandmother, Lady Margaret Butler, was a co-heiress with her sister to their dead father's estate, which was contested after the Earl had passed away in 1515. Anne's father believed that this title should belong to him as he was the son of the elder daughter. And after he complained to his brother-in-law, the Duke of Norfolk, the Duke spoke to King Henry about settling this dispute. And I think Henry was maybe fearful of potential civil war erupting in Ireland So he arranged this marriage between James Butler and Anne Boleyn as a means to to please both sides. Anne would bring her Ormond inheritance as a dowry, and James would receive that earldom in right of his wife, as that's happened plenty of times in the past. If you look at a lot of the Plantagenets and their sons, many of them became dukes or earls in right of the wife. And and another good example of that is actually Frances Brandon, the daughter of Charles and and Mary later in life. She could not inherit the duchy of Suffolk, but when she married, her husband became the Duke of Suffolk and she was the duchess through marriage, even though it was her title. These marriage plans were ultimately abandoned for Anne and James. And I think it was either because... You know, Thomas wanted a better match for his daughter, or maybe he wanted the earldom for himself. Later on, James Butler ended up marrying Lady Joan Fitzgerald, who was the heiress of the 10th Earl of Desmond, and they went on to have seven sons together. 
And if you remember all of the sons that Anne Boleyn claimed that she could have had in the time that she spent waiting for Henry's annulment, that's like salt in the wound if she found out that her previous betrothed had so many sons with his, with his new wife. James went on to receive the earldom in 1541 by an act of parliament, which made him the ninth earl of Ormond. And he had been previously invested as the Viscount Thurles in 1535. And it's interesting to note that James and Joan's eldest son, who was named Thomas and later became the 10th Earl of Ormond, was close to his cousin, Queen Elizabeth. They had met together in England when they were children, and they were able to sympathize with each other because I think both of them had experienced something akin to bullying at the court by other noble children because of who they were. An Irish boy, and in these times, the Irish were kind of looked down on, similar to how Scots were treated. They're just, they're just not civilized people, I guess. And then the illegitimate daughter of the king. And as we know, with many of her maternal cousins, Elizabeth was very fond of Thomas, and she actually referred to him as her black husband. Now, this was not in reference to Thomas's ethnicity, but rather he had very dark hair and dark eyes, and possibly his skin was a little bit more on the darker side for a Caucasian. And it makes you think that Anne Boleyn had uncommonly dark features and, and darker skin, so that might have been a very evident trademark of her own Irish heritage. And in 1588, Queen Elizabeth actually made her cousin Thomas a Knight of the Garter, which was a very unusual thing for an Irishman to receive. She, she felt a very close connection with that side of the family then, obviously. I think so. And, you know, her being so young when her mother died, I think any piece of information that she could have had, any, anything that made her feel closer to her mother was something that she held on to very well. And I don't, I don't blame her for that at all. Mm. I probably would have done the same thing. So this Thomas, you say he was Irish, which was unusual for her to, um, you know, grant him the night of the garter. Can you tell us a little bit more about him? Yeah, Thomas's um, the seat of his earldom was at his castle in Carrick-on-Swear, and he had built a magnificent Tudor-style manor house, which was complete with luxurious decor and even had brick chimneys, which were very expensive to build at the time, so not everybody had them. Thomas was likely anticipating a visit from his cousin, the Queen, and that's probably what prompted him to invest so much into improving the castle in order to have a suitable accommodation for her. Um, her visit was originally planned for some time in 1602, but it had to be postponed because Elizabeth became sick. And unfortunately, Elizabeth passed away in 1603, shortly before the visit was planned to take place. The manor house still stands today, and it's actually a gorgeous representation of Tudor-style building, and it's likely that it's the only Tudor building in Ireland. Okay, now that we know a little bit more about some of her relatives, can we talk a little bit more about Anne again? Totally. So as I mentioned before, Anne Boleyn returned to England in late 1521, and she became a maid of honor to Queen Catherine of Aragon. In March of 1522, we know that Anne took part in the pageant on Shrove Tuesday called Le Chateau Vert. It was an elaborate mask that was held in the Great Hall at York Place, which would later be known as the Palace of Whitehall. Eight hand-picked ladies were chosen for the roles of the chivalric virtues, among them being Anne Boleyn, 
as Perseverance, her sister Mary Boleyn as Kindness, their future sister-in-law Jane Parker played the role of Constance, and the king's younger sister Mary, the Dowager Queen of France, played the role of Beauty. It was during this time that Henry VIII was actually involved with Mary Boleyn, so unfortunately the pageant didn't quite play out the way it was featured in Showtime's The Tudors series, as Mary wasn't even present in that scene. I love that scene in this series, by the way. Me too. It's absolutely, I think it's stunning. I think it gives us a little bit of insight into what this, what these events looked like at court. Obviously, we can't see them, but just to be able to imagine how elaborate they were and the costumes that they had, I think is. Yeah, that's definitely my, my kind of party. Love to go to something like that. Okay, so I'm going to stop you here for a second because the next part you're about to tell us about is one of my favorite parts of Anne's life. I always say I'm not a romantic, but I do appreciate a good romantic gesture, if that makes any sense. Of course. When I hear the story of Anne and Henry Percy, it really, it breaks my heart every time. And I know I've posted blogs about this before, but it just seemed like such a love story. Can you share with everybody this amazing story? Of course. At some time in 1523, Anne Boleyn became involved with Henry Percy, who was the son of the fifth Earl of Northumberland. Through his mother, Percy was also a first cousin of William Carey, who was Anne's brother-in-law and husband of her sister Mary. Like James Butler, Percy was a page in Cardinal Wolsey's household, and he was knighted in 1519. Anne and Percy had become secretly betrothed, likely in the spring of 1523, but when Cardinal Wolsey heard of it, he publicly berated Percy in front of everybody in the household because permission had not been asked of neither his father, the Earl, nor of the King. It's debated whether or not the King already had an interest in Anne at this point, as some people claim that he forced Wolsey to intervene and end this betrothal so that Henry could pursue Anne himself. It's also said that the Earl of Northumberland felt that Anne Boleyn was not an appropriate match for his son because she was the daughter of a mere knight and therefore too low in rank for his heir. Percy was also allegedly pre-contracted to the daughter of the Earl of Shrewsbury, which which is another reason why Wolsey intervened because the earldom of Northumberland was very important to the crown and they wanted things to work out in the best interest of the crown. So Anne and Percy just were not meant to be together. And then Anne ends up marrying another Henry instead, King Henry, obviously, and Henry Percy then had to marry another. Yes, Henry Percy was later somewhat unwillingly and unhappily married to the Lady Mary Talbot, who was the daughter of the Earl of Shrewsbury. But within four years, their marriage was disintegrating. At this time, Percy was now the sixth Earl of Northumberland. He suspected his wife had been spying on him for the Duke of Norfolk, while on the other side, Lady Mary's father was concerned that she was being abused by Percy and that her husband may attempt to poison her. Mary and Henry really had a nasty marriage, didn't they? Oh, yeah, they were they were I mean, four years and everything was falling apart is I think it was very clear that they just weren't happy and it was not a match that they could have made work. In 1532, Mary Talbot accused her husband of having a pre-contract with Anne Boleyn. And after consulting with both Queen Anne and the Duke of Norfolk, an inquiry was held under oath. Percy denied the accusation. 
but by 1536, Northumberland had bequeathed his entire inheritance to the king since he had no children and he and his wife were basically estranged. Um, Henry Percy, the sixth Earl of Northumberland, died on June 29th, 1537, one year and about a month after his first love, Anne Boleyn. And then in the meantime, on Anne's side, she found Henry VIII. He was in love with her. According to David Starkey, King Henry VIII began to have feelings for Anne around either Christmas of 1524 or just into the new year of 1525, as he had already stopped sleeping with Queen Catherine. And by 1527, Henry had petitioned the Pope for a special dispensation so that he could marry again, as it was clear that Queen Catherine was beyond her childbearing years and that they would have no more children together. Anne Boleyn had made it very clear to the king that she would not consent to a sexual relationship with him unless they were married. And so begins the saga of the king's great matter and the rise of Anne Boleyn. Thank you so much for coming on the show today and talking to us about the earlier part of Anne Boleyn's life. I feel like it's the part that we hear the least about. Yeah, totally. I, I agree with that. Um, I think in in all the representations that Anne Boleyn has in the media, be it book or film or TV show, you don't learn anything about what went on before she was at the English court. And I mean, she had two very good chances to be happy. She was either going to be the Countess of Ormond or she could have been the Countess of Northumberland. And either of those matches, I think, would have benefited her and would have contented her. But unfortunately, it didn't work out that way. And even if it had, then that would have changed everything that we have because of Anne, including the reign of her daughter, Queen Elizabeth. So it it's almost like despite how tragic her life ended up being, it was the best course of action for her, the best um, destiny for Anne Boleyn. Would you be willing to come back again, Sari, and talk to everybody about the rest of Anne's life? I will come back anytime you want, and I will be here with bells on. Awesome. Sari, again, thank you so much for coming on the show today and talking about Anne. Thanks for having me. This episode of the Tudor's Dynasty podcast was brought to you in part by The Falcon Nest, handmade history-themed jewelry. The Falcon Nest specializes in gorgeous replicas of that famous Anne Boleyn bee necklace. See more at the-falcon-nest.com. And be sure to remember to use promo code Tudor's Dynasty to receive 15% off. Thanks for checking out the Tudor's Dynasty podcast. Read more. Read more on the blog at tudorsdynasty.com. Follow Tudor's Dynasty on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Subscribe to Tudor's Dynasty on iTunes. Thanks for listening. Wait a second. You don't think I actually forgot to thank my patrons, did you? Well, I didn't, but there are so many of them that it's going to be ridiculous to name them all here. So I am going to put it in my original post. I'm going to list all of you, first name, last initial. And I want to send out a special thank you to my newest patron, Debbie V. Debbie, thank you so much for becoming a patron. It means the world to me. Thank you so much for joining me today on the Tudor's Dynasty podcast. Until next time.